listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I want to invite you once again for one more time to the book of Micah. And we will be in the final chapter of Micah, chapter 7. And while you're doing that, while you're finding your place, I want to mention just two quick things. Um, For the month of November, we're going to have four weeks that we are going to focus on a series that we are going to title, Teach Us to Pray. One of the things I'd love for us to do each and every week, that we would all together recite the Lord's prayer. And so if you haven't, I actually learned this playing seventh grade football. And we gathered each and every time before games and we recited the Lord's prayer. And by the end of the season, I had it memorized. And yes, there are kind of different versions out there, but I've taken the liberty and printed some cards. And if you want to take one of those and put them in your car, put it on your mirror, uh, begin going through and memorizing, if you don't already, the Lord's prayer. And then, believe it or not, it is almost time that November will fly by. We will begin our Advent series. And if you'd love to participate in that, uh, we're looking for some families that would come and read Scripture, light our Advent candle. Um, There's a sign-up sheet on that back table next to these uh, cards we've printed uh, that you could pick a week uh, for you and your family to be a part of. But uh, Micah chapter 7. The title for today is The Power of the Lord's Forgiveness. And it is very obvious, anyone looking, that there is sin all around us. In fact, we don't even have to really look past our own noses. And we see that sin and the effects of sin are all around us. And last Wednesday night, uh, in our evening youth Bible study, we've been walking through some major doctrines. We've talked about what is the Bible creation, what is prayer. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we talked about angels and demons and clowns. And uh, But last week, we talked about what is sin. This is how we defined it. Sin is any failure, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. We talked about God's moral law and why it is so important. We talked about how sin, and we commit it by our actions, but we can also commit it by our attitudes. We saw how deep our sin runs and that we do not come into this world innocent. In fact, Scripture says we are born in iniquity. We are born children of wrath because of that sin nature that is passed down from Adam and Eve to us. And so we sin by action, we sin by attitude, but it's also, it is just our nature. It's what we do well. It's what comes natural. We even spent some time talking about that the danger when sin is tolerated and we become lax to it. And we don't take sin very serious, that how sin begins to drive its hold deeper and deeper into our lives in the world. And the truth that we see is that every generation, every generation from now all the way back that we will see in Micah's time, man's biggest problem has always been sin. 
It's, it's what the biggest problem that we'll always have. And so today we're going to answer two questions. The first question we're going to answer is what should be our response as believers to the sin around us? What, what should our response be? And then hopefully we'll be able to end with some hope that how do we keep, how do you keep yourself from sinning? So what should be our response and how could we keep, what do we have at our disposal to keep from sinning? So Micah chapter 7, the final verse of the prophet Micah begins this way. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. That's when the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. So Micah begins with this, woe is me. Micah looks at his generation, he looks at his people, and he is in misery over what he sees. And he describes what he sees using an example that his hearers would really identify with. They would know exactly what Micah was talking about. It's the time for harvesting. That wonderful, sweet summer fruits are coming in, but they find nothing. It's the time that everybody would get excited to go and gather those grapes for making wine for the months to come. And there's no clusters on those vines. The time for the first figs when they are the sweetest and they are the best. And there's no figs are growing. And Micah is describing, wants them to know he's identifying with an extreme disappointment. So what is Micah actually witnessing? If that's the word picture he gives, then what is he actually seeing? We'll look at verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. So Micah is looking and he's looking and he says that all the God-fearing people, those that the Lord loves and that should love him in return, that he cannot find one. There's like they've all perished. He says no one is upright. In fact, instead of everyone looking out for themselves, they're doing everything they can to get what they want. Micah sees people, he's describing them as people waiting in the shadows to hunt people down. They're waiting for an opportunity to shed their blood. On the surface, I mean, it sounds like a scene from a, a Halloween thriller movie. And Micah is just going to describe several groups of people at what he's actually seeing. But as we look at these people, he's going to describe, as Micah often does, several groups of people. I want you to ask, why is this happening? In Micah's time, why is this happening? And see if you can relate it to our day and time. So the first group, look at verses 3 and 4. He says, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge, they ask for a bribe. And a, the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. And the most upright of them... A thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. So Micah sees that people have become very good at doing evil. 
fact, he says both hands, it's like they are well-trained and they do it well. In the first group he talks about are the leaders that are accepting bribes. They are oppressing the poor and the weak. And they've created this system that is interwoven that is under complete destruction. Micah describes them like a briar or a thorn bush, meaning they're entangling and, and they're injuring all that would come into contact with them. He says the powerful get whatever they want and it is often at the expense of someone else. They take bribes and they're doing whatever they can to build their own kingdoms. And I think it's so easy to see this even in our day and time and even generations past. Tomorrow is going to celebrate the 499th anniversary of a time that changed the world in so many ways. It's going to be the day that Martin Luther went trick-or-treating and he knocked on St. Peter's door, but instead of looking for candy, he was looking for cleansing. He was so fed up with the church selling indulgences for people to pay for their sins. And this is what he says. It would be better if St. Peter's be burned to the ground than to be built up with the skin and the flesh, and the bones of his sheep. I mean, he was so tired of watching how they were misusing God's grace in people's lives. We can even see it, not just within the church. I mean, it is everywhere that people accepting large sums of money for seats at the table, or maybe for a decision that will benefit them later down the road. The powerful, they use their influence to gain more and more for themselves. But the question is then, but why? Why is this happening? Well, look at the next group. Verse 5 comes to maybe something a little closer to home. He says, put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth with her who lies in your arms. So it's not only the leaders that he looks out and he sees the corruption and the sinfulness. He says it's even with those that live next to us. It's their neighbors. It's the people that would come over for dinner and their friends. Micah says that no one, no one can be trusted. No confidence can be placed in a friend because they're going to stab you in the back. And it even gets worse. Look at the last phrase. He says, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies In your arms. I believe Micah is describing a husband and a wife. Micah is saying he's looking out that spouses can't even be trusted. The most intimate and private relationship are no longer safe. I mean, you think about it in our day and time. Neighbors can't get along. Friends are continuing to turn their back on one another when it's to their advantage. Marriage is ending in disaster. So why? Why why does this keep happening? Well, look, it gets even worse. Look at the next group in verse 6. For the son, man, he's going to go to, that should be one of the closest of relationships. The son treats the father with content. The daughter, she rises up against her own mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. 
Micah says that the evil is not only seen in leaders and in neighbors and friends and even spouses. It's, it's seen in the entire family unit. Son against father. Daughter rising up against her own mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Those that you are to live the closest with. He says you're now enemies when he is watching this. Think about how alive and well this is in our day and time. We're about to head into a season. I think you see this more than any other time of year where family members are at odds over such things as holiday schedules and vacations. Times that are supposed to be filled with, with joy and anticipation and excitement bring nothing but stress and heartache. The tragedy even happens when parents abuse and neglect their own children that we see each and every day. But for me, the biggest heartache is knowing that almost 60 million mothers have turned on their own children since 1973. I mean, it sickened me this week to read an article that was celebrating that the number of abortions performed annually in the United States had dropped to 1.06 million. And they were celebrating. Look, the number has fallen. A million children. So Micah looks around. Micah looks around at his people. And the only thing that people could do well was sin. Man, I think we, we, we don't even have to look outside our own homes. We don't even have to look past our own noses. But, I mean, it is all around us. But, but why? why? Why does it happen back then and it just seems that generation upon generation, why does it still continue today? I mean, we could even think, does God even care? Well, the reason to why it's our own faults because it's right there in Romans chapter 1. He tells us, Paul's writing, he says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their own hearts to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed Forever. All that the people were doing then, and all that people and even us are doing now, it, it, it's a form of God's judgment. God gave the people of Micah over to what they wanted the most. And God is giving many of us and those around us over to exactly what we're wanting. You don't know how. A million children over the last year will never breathe a breath in this world. It's because we care more about our own convenience than we do light. And it doesn't go, I mean, it just, that's what God is doing. When we don't, when we know Him, but we don't honor Him, and we exchange the beauty of God for things, when we chase after and sacrifice for what we want, God says that I'm going to turn you over to that. And God gives people over to the lust of their own hearts. And we see it each and every day. So then, what if, if that is true and it seems like there's no escape, then what should be, as believers, does God give us anything that we should do? How are we to respond to the sin around us? What should we do when 
we see the evil that people do and that we continue. Well, the first thing that we should do is exactly what Micah does. And he lays it right out here for us. Look at verse 7 through 9. So Micah sees the corruption. He sees the evil that is around him. In the leaders, in the religious system, in the families. And this is what he says. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise when I sit in the darkness. The Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord or the wrath of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and execute judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon His vindication. I mean, Micah is surrounded by ungodly, sinful people. You notice what he does. He sits in the midst of them and he cries out to the Lord, I have sinned against you. Micah doesn't allow the sin around him to distract him from the own sin in his own life. It's all around him and he writes about it in so many different ways, but he doesn't allow it to distract him from his own sin. So here, here's what I think we are to do. Here's how we are to respond to the sin that is around us. And you can't escape it. The first thing we are to do is to acknowledge our own failures and sinfulness. Micah says, for I have sinned. And then Micah, it says he continues to look to the Lord that he focuses on the one and the only one that can save him. But then Micah has faith. Micah has faith that the enemy and sin will not take him into the darkness. He doesn't think he's above it. He doesn't think he's in, not without danger. But he believes that the Lord will sustain him and take him into the light. So when we're surrounded by sin, I see three options. One, we can join in. We can participate and we can walk down the path that leads to death and destruction. And we've all been down that path at some point or another. And you may be headed down that path right now. Or you know what we can do? We can look around at the others around us and we can become very self-righteous. And we can look at people and we can begin to think, well, look how much better I am. At least I'm not like them. And we can become just like the Pharisees and believe that we're above that. Or we can become more burdened and heartbroken. And the only way that we will become more burdened and heartbroken for others that are in sin is to first see our own sin. And then I believe God creates an overwhelming sense of compassion for others. Those that are heartbroken, those that are burdened, you know what they're going to do? They're going to seek to help others that are headed in or caught in those tragedies. I believe people that have suffered with alcoholism are those that have the most compassion on those that when they see it. Those that are most compassionate for the homeless have probably experienced some form of that. 
those that are most compassionate about seeking out and helping people that are struggling, maybe have made that decision or suffering through those abortions, are probably those that have been there themselves and those that have realized that they have been through that. And Micah has compassion on the people around him and the reason is because he knows what he has been saved and redeemed from. Micah knows that he will be brought into the light and the accusations of the enemy will not stand against him. For those of us that have been called out of the darkness and into what he says, the marvelous light, for those of us that have had the control of sin broken, for those of us that know the loving forgiveness of the Lord, we should be burdened for those that are still in the darkness. But the key is the more we realize what we have come out of and what we have been set free from, the more we will be burdened for the lost. So Micah then moves into kind of a a future hope. He looks at his circumstances. He looks at the, the sin and the corruption around him. And I believe he sits down, but he says, But Lord, I am a sinner. And I believe that's the reason he's able to still have compassion. For 40 years he's been preaching this message. But he looks to the Lord, and this is what he sees in verse 10. I'm going to read through 17. Then my enemy, then in a future time, then my enemy will see. And shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day, a day for the building of your walls. And that day the boundary shall be far extended. And that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. And from Egypt to the river, from the sea to the sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in the forest and in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They will lick the dust like the serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. And they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. So Micah remembers, and he talks about the Lord's previous faithfulness and deliverance. But he's also looking forward to a time when the great shepherd is going to come, and the Lord will finally, he will finally repay all of his enemies, and Christ will come, and he will reign supreme. I believe this is another reference from Micah to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ when God will miraculously gather Israel. The nations will see it and they will be overwhelmed. 
In humiliation, he says they will lick the dust like snakes and like animals crawling out of their hiding places. And they will finally surrender to the Lord and will be faithful and see and fearful of what Israel has now become. I mean, I have to believe that these facts must have been greatly encouraging to the remnant that was left in Micah's day. But as we move to the last few verses, I want us to look at the last question. We're surrounded by sin and we're surrounded by wickedness on the outside of us, even on the inside. Then what is to keep us? What is to keep us from sinning? Is there any hope for us? Well, look at verses 18 through 20. He says, who is a God like you? Or who is like you, God? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into depths of the sea. And you shall sow faithfulness to Jacob and the steadfast love of, to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So Micah asked one of the most important questions he could ever ask. In fact, it's so interesting. It's exactly what his name means. It's like he's come to this moment, this verse, when this is recorded. It's like this is his ultimate life's purpose. His name means who is like Yahweh. And Micah gets to ask the question, who is a God like you? Notice what makes Yahweh stand out than all the other false gods. I notice six things. One, he pardons the sin and the transgressions of his remnant. It says that he does not stay angry forever. He likes to show mercy and the Lord will again, it says that he will again have compassion. and God will finally deal with all sin. And he is true to his word. And so the thing that separates Yahweh from all the others, it's his desire to forgive. All other gods, all other gods had to be appeased. You had to do something. But Yahweh, he loves to pardon and forgive. It's almost like he can't help himself. He loves to pardon and to forgive. So Wednesday night when I asked our students, then what is it? What keeps you from sinning? Or what keeps a person from sinning? And they had some great suggestions, such as not wanting to disappoint my parents. So that should make you feel good. Fear of consequences, just that fear of getting caught in something happening that that, that helps to control what I do and to think. Not wanting to be shamed. I think at the end one finally said wanting to please God. And I think all of these, I think all of these are good motivations. And, and those are there and it's like those guardrails and, and they're there for a purpose and they are good. But for me, what I see in Micah, the number one thing, the, the number one thing that should keep us from sinning 
is how forgiving God is. But we see, we almost think it's just the opposite. The, the more I think about God forgiving, then I get to go, wow, well then look at what I can do because God's obligated to forgive me. And we see it that, that Paul dealt with in Romans chapter 6. They asked that exact question. But let me read those last verses again and allow this to sink deep within your heart. Think about where you have been and where you could have been if sin, but... But who is like you, God, pardoning the iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will stomp them in the ground. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. So God's desire and the amount of forgiveness He has, it should motivate us to run from sin and to Him. That should be our number one motivator for not sinning is how forgiving God actually is. So I want to leave it with a word picture. I want to follow Michael's example. I want to tell you about a man that I've never met and many of us have probably never heard of. His name was Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, famous church. And he pastored there for 33 years until he passed away in 1960. One day, a young professional, he met him on this college campus. The man came up to him and he told Barnhouse his kind of sad story that during World War I, before he'd become a Christian, he'd fallen in with bad company, and while living in Paris, he'd fallen into many inappropriate relationships. After he had come home, he became a believer, became a Christian, and he'd fallen in love with a, a Christian girl who loved him. However, this young professional hesitated to tell her of his love for her because he was afraid of his past sin might lead him to sin again and even wound her. It's like he couldn't escape it. The young man asked Barnhouse, then what should I do? What should I do in this situation? And Reverend Barnhouse advised him, and he did this by sharing another story, a very similar story. He told him of another couple that he had met. And he's beginning to kind of share, and he began to share this story. The man, as his eyes begin to widen, and soon his head kind of fell into his hands. Because he was so afraid that this young woman, that he was so afraid to confess his love to, that her knowledge of his weakness, that it would help him. There's nothing that he felt that he could do. That he just knew he was going to do this again. The Barnhouse shares this story that he's hoping. But he told him, he said, this is what you must do. That you have to remove all the barriers. You have to remove any barrier that might be between you and her. And he says, besides, young man, her knowledge of, of your weakness, that might actually help him stay in step 
And this is the story Barnhouse shared. He said, sometime before, two other people came into my life and shared a very similar story. The man had also lived a life of great sin, and he'd been converted, and eventually had come to marry a fine Christian woman. He had confided to her of the nature of his past life and sinful relationships. After he had told her these things, the wife kissed him. And she said, John, I want you to understand something. I know the Bible well. And therefore, I know the subtlety and the devices of sin working deep within the human heart. I know you are a thoroughly converted man, but I know that you still have an old nature that you are not yet fully instructed in the ways of God as you soon will be. The devil, he will do all that he can to wreck your Christian life. And he will see to it that temptation is around every single corner. And the day might come. Please God that it should never. But the day might come when you might be faced and you will succumb to the temptation and fall into sin again. And immediately the devil will tell you that there is no use trying. That you might as well continue in a sin and that above all you are not to tell me because it will hurt me. But John, my love, I want you to know that here, here in my arms is your home. When I married you, I married your old nature as well as your new And I want you to know that there is full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that you may ever come into in your life. And while Barnhouse told this young professional that story, he just kept his face covered in his hands. However, at the end of that story, he lifted his eyes and this is what he said. My God, if anything, If anything could ever keep a man straight, that would be it. You see, God's forgiveness should be the ultimate motivator for us standing up against sin. And so this morning I would ask you, do do you know that deep, unending well of God's forgiveness? If you do, remember God is the God of forgiveness, and He excels at it, as in all His other attributes. And He wants you to know it precisely, so you might keep from sinning. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we see the sin around us. And Lord, we want to be like Micah. When we first say, Lord, I have sinned against you. Because I believe out of that awareness and that acknowledgement, you can give us compassion and we can be burdened for those that are still in sin. Lord, we acknowledge it's sad that we're often intimidated and afraid to talk about the gospel with those around us. But Lord, it is because we do not realize 
We do not take into full consideration the sin that we have been set free from and what it is doing to that person. So, Father, first, help us to be burdened. And second of all, Lord, when we each and every day, we do not have to look past our own noses to know that sin is alive and well in our own hearts, in our actions, in our own attitudes. But Father, I pray that we would look upon your forgiveness. And instead of giving us a license to do as we will, it would be something, it would be a weapon that we could use to stand against sin. That God, you are a God of forgiveness and you excel at it. And you want us to know that precisely to keep us from sinning. So Lord, overwhelm us with your forgiveness. And Lord, it is in his name that brings that forgiveness to us. By the power of your spirit that indwells us and enables us, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.